Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it shows us the joy of getting to partner together in ministry with faithful brothers and sisters who carry forward the message of Jesus. Would you help us here at College Park Castleton to be a people, a people that produce joy both here in our community and abroad as we lock arms to bring the good news of Jesus to people that need it desperately. Speak to us now, enlarge our hearts so we can love more as we ought to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was December 17th of 1903 when the Wright brothers finally took off. They flew a, a meager 800 feet in Ohio, flying something called the Wright Flyer Number 1. Uh, it wasn't really an impressive flight in the grand scheme of things, except for the fact that it was the first powered flight of what we would call an airplane. Oh, to be sure, their partnership went way back before that moment. The, the two brothers, Orville and Wilbur, had been in business together for years at that point. First, they invented a, a printing press and had a, a printing business, and then they were bicycle shop owners. But it wasn't really until they got into aviation that you might say that they took off. You can see how effective partners they are by the fact that we talk about them as a unit. We almost always talk about the Wright brothers, not about Orville or Wilbur, as brilliant as they both were. A great partnership can do some amazing things. But it is a journey before you get to that moment of joy at the end. Contrast the idea of a partnership with the idea of a donor. I was a, um, a worker in a science museum in Fort Lauderdale that would put on some really big events to try and raise money for that uh, organization. They would do wine tastings. They would get people to come in really, really nice dresses and nice suits, and they would sit around sipping really expensive wine. And then at the end of the day, they would write really big checks that would let that museum run. I remember one of the people that ran those events, you could, we, they were happy that the money was coming in, but they said, you know, it's interesting. For all the money these people are giving, this is the only time out of the whole year where they'll walk into this museum. See, a donor doesn't go along for the journey. A donor drops dimes on a worthy cause. And then the donor, from a distance, watches what happens. As Christians, each of us need to think about how it is we're going to go about the ministry of bringing the gospel all over the world. Will we have the mentality of partners, of those who go along the journey and share in the joy? Or as donors, we'll stand back and drop some dough on a worthy cause. As we begin Reach 2018, my hope and my prayer as pastor of this congregation is that we would be committed to being partners in gospel ministry, to go along for the journey so that we, in the end, can share in the joy. We're going to look at a passage of scripture over these next two Sundays that is uniquely qualified to show us what a gospel partnership really is. Philippians 1 we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to walk all the way to verse 14 over these next two Sundays. It's a, a passage of Scripture that shows us both the joy and the growth of gospel partnerships. That's what we'll look at this week. As well as the impact 
and the advance that the gospel, uh, impact and the advance of the gospel through these partnerships. My hope and my prayer is that we as a congregation at the end of this will be firmly committed to partnering with global ministry partners so that we can go along the journey and share in the joy. Let's begin by looking in verses three through eight where we'll see the joy of gospel partnerships. Paul starts off with some language that shows that he has a little bit of joy in his heart. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This is the first of many times that Paul is going to ring that joy bell in the book of Philippians. As he describes his relationship with this church in Philippi, you're going to get the sense that Paul really knows and really loves these people. If you let your eyes scan down to verse 7, you'll see that he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. It's almost as if he's embarrassed about how much he loves these people and he feels like he has to justify the way he feels about them. In verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. You get the sense this is a man who's writing from a heart that's full of joy and love for a church, and it's spilling out in the pen as he writes this letter. Well, what is it about this church that you might say has made it Paul's favorite church plant of all the churches he's planted? Well, for us to understand that, we need to back up and remember how it is this church came to be. The Apostle Paul was a pretty enterprising church planter. He had traveled around uh, the Turkey and Eastern Europe, and he, uh, along the way he's planting churches all the way he was going, and uh, he had his first missionary journey, and then he decided he was going to retrace his steps and go and visit all the churches he had planted to encourage them. But the Holy Spirit had a different plan. Along the way, the, the Spirit actually prevented Paul from going back and retracing his steps and shunted him westward into what we would call modern-day Greece. Maybe he had that vision of a, a Macedonian man ple pleading, just bring the gospel to us. We need, come help us. Well, as Paul fulfilled that mission, he ended up in a town called Philippi. It's a Roman colony. You might say it's a bit of a hoity-toity town. It had a really, really high upper class and a really low working class and a big gap between them. It was as unreached as they come. There, there wasn't even a synagogue where Paul could go into or a gathering of Gentiles that worshipped Yahweh that he could just start with to begin his ministry as he did in so many cities. Instead, he wandered out to near a river on, one, on a Sabbath morning and he found a gathering of a few women that worshipped the Jewish God. He shared the gospel with them. They came to faith. You might know the name of one of them, Lydia. She became the patron of that church. The church actually met in her house. There was just a small, tiny group of believers there. And pretty quickly, it was a group of believers that had to deal with the reality of suffering and persecution because Paul exercised the demon out of the wrong slave girl and he and his companions ended up in jail as a result. That little church prayed, and as Paul and his companions sang hymns that night, God shook that jail until it broke open. As a result, the, the jailer himself and all of his family became converted and, and joined this fledgling little church. Paul and his companions couldn't stay. They were sent off and continued planting churches along the way. 
But from day one, this was a joyful, loving partnership. This was a church that he knew would stand with him. I think it's the very fact that this church was started with difficulty that allowed them to be faithful partners through the years with Paul. So what is it that makes Paul drawn to this church? What is it that produces this joy within him? What's that the Philippians were faithful partners in ministry with him? Look with me in verse 5. Because, the reason he has all this joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word for partnership, as translated in the ESV, is translated as uh, fellowship in the King James, if you have an older translation. It's worth us spending a little time to unpack what this term means. When Christians talk about the idea of fellowship these days, we tend to mean something along the lines as Christians spending social time with each other. So if you went and you uh, hung out in the holiest fast food place of all, Chick-fil-A, with someone from church, you might say we enjoyed some fellowship, right? If you go and have a potluck after church, you have a time of fellowship. We even sometimes call them fellowship halls, don't we? If you did those same activities, you got together at Chick-fil-A with someone who's not a Christian, well, you just hung out, right? That, that we call Christian socializing fellowship. But the, the concept in the Bible is much, much deeper than that. The, uh, the term for that is koinonia. It comes from the commerce side of the world. Uh, the idea is that you enter into a partnership with someone. Let's say we were to buy a boat and you decided that you wanted to start a fishing business. As you signed all the legal paperwork with a buddy of yours to split half the profits, you were entering a koinonia or a partnership. It meant that you guys were in it together, that you would go through the ups and the downs together. You would share in the profits and the losses. A koinonia is locking arms with someone saying, I'm with you along the journey so I can share with you in the joy. The Philippian church was one that partnered with the Apostle Paul. They partnered with him in the gospel, the, the work of bringing the message of Jesus to every part of the world so people that have never met him might be introduced. Now, what, what is the nature of this partnership? Well, I'm going to summarize it in four F's that are all going to come out from the end of this letter. So if you have your Bible, flip with me to Philippians chapter 4. And in the end of this letter, we, the nature of the letter really comes out. You see, at its core, Philippians is really a missionary support letter. It's the Apostle Paul in jail writing a thank you letter to this faithful church partner for a gift that they sent him through a friend that they sent to visit him. Um, we're going to spend a little time here, so keep your thumb on uh, chapter 1. We're going to stay in chapter 4 for uh, a few minutes here. So what's the nature of this partnership? Well, the first thing is that it's a partnership that shares in finances. You, you can see that in verses 10, 16, and 18. In verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. So Paul's saying that, that you've done something that shows me you still care. You, you didn't have an opportunity to show you cared for a stretch there. 
But now something's come up and you've shown that you care. Well, we'll get an idea of what that is in just a second. Skip with me down to verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. So what this church is doing is they are partnering with Paul by sharing in his trouble. The, the occasion of this letter is Paul himself is in jail. He's in a Roman prison. And in Roman prisons, you did not have room and board given to you. You weren't given adequate clothing. You certainly weren't given proper food. If people didn't provide the things you needed, you would just die in jail. The Philippians heard of Paul's distress, and they sent him a gift. You see the nature of the gift in verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. And then in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So at the most basic level, what is this gospel partnership made up of? The first thing, the first pillar of it, is that they shared of their means, their finances with Paul. They gave him money. They gave him physical things he needed to survive and continue doing his ministry. It, it's not inappropriate for missionaries to seek to have financial support. We live in the world. There are needs in this world, and, and God gives gifts to all of his children that are to be shared to push forward the ministry of the gospel. So the first nature of it is finances are shared. The second is a friendship that's shared. Then in verse 18, you, he said that uh, he received full payment. How did he receive it? From Epaphroditus. So the way this went down, we don't know precisely where Paul was in prison, but it would have been at least several hundred miles away. So this whole church couldn't just get up and go visit him. Uh, th there was no... Uh, way to wire money from one place to the other. So instead, they appointed one of their number to go and bring this gift to Paul, this man Epaphroditus. Now we know from other parts of Scripture that it was not an easy journey for Epaphroditus. He got sick and nearly died. Paul describes him as a great encouragement to them. Epaphroditus represents not just uh, someone carrying a money bag. Epaphroditus represents a friend and a friendship with a church that has not forgotten about Paul. They sent someone to him, and that someone represents that their relationship is intact. Third thing about this partnership is that it's a fearless partnership. In verse 14 that we already read, he said, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Again, the occasion for this letter is that the Philippians helped Paul while he was in jail. That wasn't true for all of the people who had given Paul money over the years. Some of them, once he went into jail, took the opportunity to start sneering at Paul, to say something like, yeah, that Paul, he got himself into trouble, but we're a little smarter than that. We do ministry in such a way that we don't get the authorities on our back. Not so for the Philippians. They weren't afraid of being associated with their spiritual father who was in jail. They were faithful to continue that relationship. Flip back with me to chapter 1. I want to show you that this comes out even in the passage we were in, in verse 7. Paul said, It was right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. What does it mean to be partakers with Paul of grace? Both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See why this church is so near and dear to Paul? They would not, they would not be pushed off of their commitment to their partnership with him. They were not afraid of the consequences of being associated with a man that the Roman Empire didn't like. Syria apparently has some thoughts on that. (laughs) They were fearless, and that means they stuck it out to the end. The fourth and final pillar of this, the reason that Paul's so encouraged by this church's partnership, is because he knows this partnership will last forever. Verse 6 is one of those verses that you memorize at Vacation Bible School, and I hope you memorize it. It is a sweet, sweet promise to all believers. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We rightfully love that verse because it tells us that God finishes what he starts. When God starts a work in us, when we come to Christ and salvation and faith, We can have confidence that on the final day, we will still find Jesus to be that Savior we put our trust in. God will get us there. He will finish what he starts. What's more amazing, though, is when you realize the context of that verse. It's written in the context of why Paul is so joyful about this partnership. These aren't just partners for a couple years. These aren't just some people that have given him some money that he has a relationship with for a little stretch. These are people he's going to spend eternity with. It's a partnership that'll go on forever. Really, the good news of the gospel is that God didn't save us as individuals to go off under a tree somewhere and enjoy a time with Jesus disconnected from others. But God is saving for himself a people. He redeems us from our sins. He sets us free from the shackles of sin so that we can be free to partner with others to advance his kingdom and bring the gospel to all corners of the earth. You know, we may not get as much time with our missionary partners sitting in our living room or going to go bowling or or anything like that as we might like. And yet in one sense, the relationships we invest in now that are gospel partnerships, are relationships that will last forever. You may not get a ton of face-to-face time with them now, but you certainly will in the new heavens and the new earth. See, gospel partnerships are the types of things that are worth investing in because they pay eternal dividends and the sort of partnerships that don't end. If you go along, with the, if you go along for the journey, you'll also share in the joy. So what are some principles we can take away from that? What are some things that we can apply as a congregation? Well, first, it should mean that we are committed to gospel partnerships over the long haul. It's wonderful to be on the forefront, the the bleeding edge of wherever an opportunity pops up. And when you're able to do that, that's a wonderful blessing. There are times where even a a donor-type support for an initiative or uh, a ministry is helpful and good. But I I think we can draw from this that the way to maximize joy and effectiveness in gospel partnerships is to build relationships and partnerships that last, to be in it for the long haul. My hope would be that the missionary partners that we are initiating a partnership with over the next two Sundays would be ministry partners 
for decades to come through seasons of plenty and seasons of little, through difficulty and through abounding fruit, that we'd be a congregation that stands by the partners we send to all corners of the world because it's a partnership that's meant to last. I think this also means that as a congregant, you should be committed to getting to know your missionaries as much as you're able. Now, that is difficult in some senses. I mean, uh, when we send missionaries across the globe, it's a little harder to have them over for dinner. Um, With that said, there are opportunities available to us that we're not even available to Paul and the Philippian church. We have that global missions wall that uh, we just put up. Uh, My hope would be every time you walk by it, you're reminded of our global missionaries. Maybe you have it in the back of your head when the Lord prompts you, that you will send an email or an encouraging note to one of our missionaries just to let them know that you're in this with them. You're thinking about them and you're praying for them. One of the most encouraging things that a missionary can have happen is when his local church sends a trip of people to come and visit them doing ministry. Maybe that you would be called to go on what we call a vision trip, a short-term trip, not necessarily to dig a well or build a wall, but to, to encourage our missions partners, where they are in the trenches. Certainly, I hope when our missionaries come back on furloughs that we are a congregation that showers them with love, that we make the most of our opportunities while they're close. But just because they are across seas, just because they are in different countries does not mean that we stop trying to develop the sorts of relationships that we see between Paul and the Philippian church. One other way we can apply this as a local church is we need to be committed to gospel partnerships here locally too. What I mean by that is the, it's not optional for us in a local church to lock arms with the other believers God's put us here with. Membership is an important part of what we do here as a local church. It identifies that we are partnering together for the work of ministry here. If you've not committed to a local church, ours or otherwise, let this be a reminder to you that we're all called to be a part of God's people. And the way God's organized that is with local churches. There's joy to be had, but it's only for those who go along for the journey. First, we saw the joy of gospel partnerships. That leaves a very important question. How is it you maintain them and how is it that even you might see them grow in fruitfulness? Well, that's what we see in verses 9 through 11, the growth of gospel partnerships. Well, you could describe verses 3 through 8 as Paul telling the Philippians about his experience as he prays. He says while he prays for them, he has this experience. In 9 through 11, he shifts, and now he actually prays for them. This is Paul interceding for the Philippians. And look what it, how it is he talks about, about that. It says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. What does Paul pray for them? Certainly there were important needs within that congregation. If we read the rest of the letter, it's obvious they're beginning to face persecution. There were believers coming in that had all sorts of physical needs, material needs. What's Paul's priority though? It's for them to mature spiritually. Paul, as it were, he's praying the gospel into them. 
so he would see gospel fruit coming out from them. He says that he wants their love to abound more and more. He's told them about his love for them. Now he wants that same love to be present amongst them and noticed by the world around them, that their love would abound more and more. How does that happen? With knowledge and all discernment. Sometimes people try to pit spirituality Try to, in spirituality, they try to pit knowledge and love against each other. Like, you can either be deep in your walk with Jesus, know lots of theology, know lots of the Bible, or you can be authentic and loving. But you can't be both. According to Paul, the way that you grow in love is by going deeper in your knowledge of God. As you read your Bible, as you sit under sound preaching, as you are in your small groups talking through how the word applies to you, it should be drawing us deeper and deeper into love for each other and love for Jesus. That knowledge will result in all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent. That is, as this mature Christian character is being built, the Philippians will be able to choose between the good and the best. Not just to know the things that are outright sinful and to things that no Christian ought to do, but the very specifics in your life, the, the opportunities you have, which of them actually are best. I know so much of pastoral encouragement and counseling centers on this idea. What decision do I make? Should I go to this school or that school? Should I take this job or that job? Should I pursue this relationship or that relationship? What's the answer to how you make a decision like that? Well, according to Paul, it's that your love would abound more and more by knowing more about God, by going deeper and deeper in your knowledge of God so that you grow spiritually. And then the decisions you make will be wise, discerning, God-pleasing. The final link in this chain is transformation. You see it in verse 11. So that you, I'm sorry, verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Final step in all this is uh, a Christian character that's been so changed to be like Jesus. You can only characterize it as a transformed life. Purity. On the final day when Jesus arrives, a, a people that have been made so much like him that they are pure and blameless. Now, as Paul has already said earlier in this letter, salvation and even sanctification, that work of being more like Jesus, is a work of God. The way he describes it there is the fruit of righteousness that's yours in Jesus Christ. That is, this is Jesus producing results in your life. And yet even so, it is the inevitable result of a people that are growing deeper in their knowledge of God and loving each other and growing more and more in their character. It's God working within us to make us more suitable for the task. What's instructive in all this is this is how Paul prays for his ministry partners. So you might ask, how is it that a church should go about keeping a ministry partnership vibrant and alive and from stalling out? Well, the answer in some sense is get on your knees and pray. We need to be praying the gospel into our missionaries and praying it into each other so we can keep our partnerships in the gospel alive. You know, I, I love getting together to pray with other believers. There's a joy in doing that. 
And yet there's also a danger because over time, prayer groups tend to veer toward the most felt, most obvious life needs within that group. We tend to veer towards medical issues, issues with our jobs, issues with our marriages. Those are all important things. I mean, we're, we're exhorted to cast all our anxieties on the Lord. And yet most important for us as a partnership of believers is to be praying the gospel into each other. Praying that we would be more and more like Jesus. That we see ourselves as sinners that are redeemed by Jesus. To see ourselves as on mission for Jesus. That God might produce within us that sort of spiritual fruit. Do you pray that way? Do you pray that way for your family? Do you pray that way for your kids? Do you pray that way for your church? We see here a beautiful example of someone who loves a group of believers so greatly, and his highest priority is to pray for them, that they would be drawn deeper and deeper into their walk with Jesus. So if there's something you want to do to be a good missions partner, as a part of our partnership with our missionaries, I would invite you to pray. Pick up one of those prayer cards that Luke talked about. Set a reminder on your phone. Do whatever you have to. Just carve out time to get on your knees and pray for our missionaries. What should you pray for? Well, there will be a number of things on that card that will help you. Make sure one of those things you pray for is that their own walk with Jesus would be growing deeper and deeper. That they wouldn't just be effective in evangelizing other people, but that their own soul might be ministered to. That they might be drawing deeper into a love for God's people and a love for God himself. Spiritual work requires spiritual aid. And that means we had better be a people that are marked by our prayer lives. If we're going to be partners that are along for the journey so that we can ultimately share in the joy told you that I hope that we would not slip into a donor mentality, that we'd be a church that's in it for the long haul, that we'd see these partnerships as going along with the journey so that we could share in the joy in the end. There's a, a beautiful example of this between uh, a sender and a missionary. Uh, the missionary is William Carey. You've likely heard that name, uh, one of those pioneer missionaries whose impact is still being fe felt today went off taking the gospel into India. He had a friend named Andrew Fuller who was committed to being a partner back home and to raising support and praying his guts out for Kerry over and over again. In a sermon that he wrote and in letters he wrote, he shared this anecdote of how he felt this burden to maintain this ministry partnership. He described it like, there were a group of people that were about to send someone down into a mine. This is what he said. While we were thus deliberating, Carrie, as it were, said, well, I'll go down if you hold the rope. But before he went down, it's as if he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. Now, Andrew Fuller lived by that motto. He was committed to his ministry partnerships until his dying breath. 
He started mission societies. He preached tirelessly on the, the role of local churches in supporting missionaries. And, and he did not abandon his friend who went off to bring the gospel to places where it had not yet been heard. Friends, if we are going to share in the joy, we've got to go along for the journey. I pray as a congregation that we would be a people that partner for the long haul, that we see gospel growth in ourselves and in our missionaries, and that on the final day, we would be able to say that we were partners in this great undertaking of sending the gospel to all the corners of the earth. Let's pray.